The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Welcome to the show as we kick off another week here on Beyond Reality. Excited to start the week with two guests, by the way. Tonight we'll be talking about a couple very different topics. In the first part of the program, Alfonso Alfonso Colasuono will be with us. Tough name to pronounce. Uh, He's written a book called The Book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn. We're going to talk about the unicorn in mythology and legend. And then later in the program, we've got Lynn Monet joining us. Lynn has written a book as well. Her book is uh, a little bit different. It's called Omnipresent. And it talks about uh, uh, the haunted house she lived in, plus her ability to see interdimensional spirits and demons. So we've got two very, very different topics to address tonight. Both of them will be fascinating. Looking forward to doing that in just a few minutes. Make sure you join us on our online communities, Twitch, YouTube, and of course, Facebook. If you search for any of those, if you just search for JV Johnson, you'll find them. Please subscribe, follow, and like, and do all those things uh appreciate that please support the program go to patreon.com slash joha that's j-o-h-a-w this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in williamsburg virginia there's never too much of a good thing whether you're a foodie a golfer a history buff a shopaholic an outdoor enthusiast or a thrill seeker you'll find what you came for here and more so ask yourself what is it you want Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Tonight, we've got two very different topics that we'll be addressing. In the first part of the program, we'll be talking about unicorns. And in the second part of the show, we'll uh, change the topic to hauntings. And uh, we'll talk to Lynn Monet, who's going to talk about her time in a haunted house and her ability to see interdimensional spirits and demons. But our first guest of the night, Alfonso Colasuono, is an author, and he's written a book actually co-authored a book called The Book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn. And we're pleased to have Alfonso with us. Alfonso, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Hey, great to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for the opportunity. So I guess the biggest question of the night might be the best place to start here. When we talk about unicorns, from your perspective and the work you've done and, and what you've written, are unicorns flesh and blood or are we talking about something very different? You know, that's sort of, uh, I'll give an in-between to that. Uh, first of all, I would say that they're interdimensional creatures. And I was really skeptical about whether unicorns even existed when I started work on this project, on the Book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn, uh, with my co-author, Vakasha Brenman. But about 10 days into working with her on this project in her apartment in New York City, I started seeing um, the unicorn horn just emerge, uh, you know, from, just materialize out of thin air in her really? apartment. It was the... It was only the second and to date just still the second supernatural event that I've ever experienced. So it's not like I'm having these things every day. I took that as a sign that, you know, we were doing the right thing and telling the unicorn story here. When I told Vakasha the next day, uh, she just had a laugh about it because she said other people had had experiences like that with the unicorn at her home. So then maybe I asked the question incorrectly. I said flesh and blood, but we're talking about maybe a cryptid type type creature here and not just the stuff of fantasy stories. Yeah. I mean, I think a cryptid might be a good way to describe the unicorn. Um, they are not some, uh, type of creature you're going to see every day. Uh, that's for sure. 
Um, but they do have at least 6,000 years of known human history. Uh, have, we have encounters with the unicorn throughout them. We're talking Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, um, Alexander the Great, Confucius's mother, Confucius himself. So many historical figures have had personal encounters with the unicorn, flesh and blood encounters with the unicorn. But it's still pretty rare, and the reason why the unicorn is still pretty rare is because it's an interdimensional creature. It can pop in to our reality when appropriate, but most of the time you're not going to see it, and that's why we don't see unicorns. They're just not as ubiquitous as you'd see a dog or a horse or any other uh, animal uh, of the type. You know, one of the things I found interesting in the list of notables that you just listed, having had unicorn experiences of their own, it crosses many cultures and many continents. Yes, that's definitely the case. Uh, when I started work on the book, The Magical Mythical Unicorn, with my co-author, uh, Vakasha Brenman, I had no idea. I, I really knew almost nothing about the unicorn, and that was what made the project so exciting uh, to me. Um, just always loving the paranormal, always loving the supernatural and all things of the sort. But I didn't know anything about the unicorn. I thought it was mostly just a cartoonish thing for kids and had some sort of vague connection to British culture. I had no idea that every or many cultures all throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, North America, even South America, have had experiences with the unicorn across time periods, across different spiritual traditions. So, yeah, I, I was just blown away um, seeing just how vast the, the number of experiences people have had with the unicorns and cultures have had with the unicorn. So are you putting them into the same category of like uh, Sasquatch or uh, Loch Ness monsters, some of these, these what we would call cryptid-type creatures that make um, unscheduled and rare appearances? Definitely in the sense of unscheduled and rare appearances. Now, I'm not an expert in the Loch Ness monster or in Sasquatch, but what I do think, from what I do know about them, what makes the unicorn really different from, from them is that the unicorn has been with humanity as a special kind of friend, um, you know, really since the beginning of time. If you, if you go into the Chinese tradition and, and ancient Chinese religion, the unicorn was one of four creatures, along with the dragon, the phoenix, and the tortoise, who worked with the creator god Pangu to create our entire universe. Uh, if you go into s some other traditions, um, you know, here in the West, we, we have uh, traditions of the unicorn being with the first man and the first woman in the Edenic paradise. Now, you know, you could go, uh, you know, really either way, west or east, you're still seeing the unicorn with us since creation. Uh, and, and it's just amazing in the sense that it has been with us, helping us. As far as I know, Loch Ness Monster, Sasquatch, uh, as, you know, interesting as they are, yeah. I don't think they have that dimension in terms of health or really having uh, much of a connection with us. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Uh, so if if unicorns are one of these cryptid-type uh, creatures that make an interdimensional appearance when it's appropriate, the question then is when is it appropriate and what is their purpose? What's their mission when they make that venture across dimensions? Well, uh, in the past and in the present, it's always been sort of, when something really noteworthy happens. So usually when, um, it, it, for example, that's going to be noble and really real well, the unicorn will make its appearance over there. Also when a leader might die who also you know ruled really well and governed their people really well. So that's sometimes where the unicorn comes in in really special great people for uh, 
history, you know, to just everyday individuals. Um, so, you know, everyone listening today, if you really probably get a connection to the unicorn, you may not see the horn materialize, you may not see a physical unicorn, uh, you know, in, in your apartment or home or anything, but, you know, it may come from different ways. It may come um, through telepathic communication or just feeling a knack that you're on the right track in some way. All right, you're going to have to explain that a little bit more. So you ex described your experience after be basically being a non-believer and kind of starting on on this project. You had your own experience where a, I think you said, a unicorn horn materialized. You didn't see the whole unicorn, but you saw the horn. Is that right? Yeah, so um, when I first started with this project, um, my uh, partner said that a lot of people have these kinds of experiences at her home. I took it with, with a grain of salt. Sure. I went to bed around 10 at night that, that night. You know, did, wasn't hitting the bottle of old granddad too hard, nothing like that. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't lucid dreaming. I fell asleep. And about three hours later, I woke up stick straight. And I just started seeing the unicorn's horn. It was spiraled. It was multicolored. And it started appearing to me. I didn't call it. I didn't call for it. I didn't ask for the unicorn to make its appearance known. It just happened randomly. And I think... You know, my what I would intuit from the situation is that the unicorn knew I was skeptical, but it wanted to convince me in, in the nature of not treating this like just another assignment, but something that I really wanted to give everything to in order to get its true story out. And I think it served its purpose in that capacity. And did and that experience basically was the proof you needed uh, to put all of those doubts that you'd had away? Yeah, I'd say, you know, once you see something with your own eyes, you really can't, uh, you right. know, discount it. I've always been pretty uh, skeptical about things. Um, but, you know, when you when you see something with your own eyes, yeah, there's really no way you could refute it after that. What kind of experiences historically have some of the people, either the, the ones that you've listed or others, uh, have have they had with unicorns and and have they written these experiences into uh, the historical account of the day? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are definitely featured in the historical account. Um, when we were researching the book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn, we um, we found multiple sources validating everything that we said. We have an extensive work cited in the book. Um, some of these instances are, uh, like, if you go back to really the earliest uh, known civilizations, like in China, uh, emperor Fuxi, the first emperor of China, actually had the Chinese language um, given to him on the back of a unicorn. The characters in um, the Chinese script were on the unicorn's back because he did not know how to get his people to communicate in a way for, for more effective trade and, and a, a more functioning society. And the unicorn appeared to him uh, through, through that. We have other stories of Genghis Khan who terrorized Central Asia, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and one place that he did not invade was India. And there are documented sources of Genghis Khan um, being um, stopped by a unicorn at the border of the Indus Valley at Mount Jadanaring and, um, and just not going, not going to invade. So we have sources for all of these in our book. And uh, yeah, it was just an incredible experience finding out all this information about the unicorn and, and how it affected different cultures and noteworthy individuals throughout time. So these 
ex- these experiences and this and the unicorn as a symbol and a uh, a creature that has, that is not only cited by people but actually written into the the history of different cultures and different peoples we're seeing this span the globe um do you have a sense i mean many of these types of stories tend to be culturally fueled this doesn't seem to be culturally fueled this seems to be globally uh how do we explain that is 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 this something that's a spiritual experience for people i mean i think part of it is just the fact that there has to be uh you know the truth to the story um you know when when we look at the earliest known civilizations uh, like Egypt, which has a hieroglyphic character for the unicorn mm-hmm. um, in, in the ancient Egyptian language. When you look at China with the first emperor having experience with the unicorn, it's documented. When you look at the Sumerians and the bas reliefs that they have featuring the unicorn, when you look at the Indus Valley and even things like incense burners that had the unicorn featured on it, you, you know, uh, and even to um, a lot of spiritual traditions that people might have more in common with or, or be more aware of like the nine references to the unicorn in the Bible. Um, I think it all comes from the fact that the unicorn is absolutely a creature that exists in a flesh and blood sense. And even though it's rare because it's interdimensional, um, it, it has impacted cultures and individuals throughout time. And now we're seeing uh, more and more the unicorn reemerge, even in, even in like um, things that could be pretty trivial like NBA player Kristaps Porzingis being nicknamed businesses radically fast being called unicorns. These are all, even though they seem trivial, signs that the unicorn is reemerging because it's been kind of um, quiet. There haven't really been too many experiences, too many noteworthy things in the historical record over the last 300 years with the unicorn, but that's definitely changing right now. Yeah, I want to get into that in just a minute, but I want to talk a little bit more about the physical properties of this of the unicorn. Um, clearly, the pop culture uh, image and maybe this is the accurate image is that we're basically looking at a horse-like creature that has a single horn protruding from its forehead between you know in the middle between its eyes basically is that what we're talking about yeah m- um, there are certainly some differences in culture in terms of the depiction but more or less that's basically what's presented uh, there are some variations in the length of the horn the color of the horn the color of the unicorn itself um, you know other things like that but more or less that's a very consistent image across culture, across time periods, and across uh, different traditions. Has anybody ever captured, and I suppose if they've been rather rare over the last 300 years, the, the answer would be no to this question, but has anybody ever captured any any kind of uh, photographic or videographic evidence of a unicorn appearing? Uh, not to the best of my knowledge. I mean, um, a lot of these records, you know, they exist mostly in antiquity or yeah. into uh, the Middle Ages, and really, because the unicorn, with the with the advent of modern technology, you know, it's just not really coinciding so much in, in our modern age. So, as far as I know, there's no documented, um, you know, valid, um, you know, videos or photographs of a unicorn today. And if there are, I'd love people to uh, reach out to me at theunicornbook.com on the contact form and, and let me know about it because that would be very fascinating. I mean, the the. the world of photography is only 160 or so years old. So if these creatures really haven't been appearing for the last 300 years, they haven't appeared in a time where particularly uh, we all are walking around with very high quality cameras and video cameras in the form of a cell phone. So that would make a lot of sense. Let's talk about uh, the horn itself. I've heard through, you know, what little bit I know of unicorns that there's these horns 
possess a lot of magical properties. What do you know about this? Uh, yeah, the unicorn horn definitely possesses a lot of magical properties. It's what makes it separate from other animals, from, from just an everyday horse. Uh, throughout history, there have been many instances of either a full unicorn horn or even fragments, even powder uh, of the unicorn horn being used to cure just about any sort of uh, ailment from a cold to even reversing death in some rare uh, occasions. Uh, but mostly the unicorn horn has always been used as anti-poison. And this was a big problem, particularly in Europe around the Middle Ages, where um, nobles and other political leaders would poison each other, even poison their own family members. <laughs> Constantly, in power yeah. Grabs. yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a really terrible issue. Yep. And so people would, would use the unicorn horn as a way to test it. Now, the problem was sometimes you'd actually get a valid unicorn horn. You'd have to pay a fortune for it. But other times you'd have to pay a fortune for it, and it was bunk. Uh, the King James of the, the King James Bible actually had a pretty uh, morbid story where someone bought a uh, he thought he had bought an actual unicorn horn. His um, servant tested it on some food and it actually was poisoned and the guy dropped dead from it. So, you know, buyer beware. Absolutely. But um, yeah. So let's talk about the Middle Ages a little bit and these unicorn horns that were being offered for sale. Were they common enough that you should actually have some specialized merchant rolling through town and say, hey, Mr. King, I actually have the real deal here. This is a unicorn horn and it'll keep you from being poisoned. I mean, was it that common? It was actually in many parts of Europe. It was that common. Now, the full unicorn horn was definitely not common. That was mostly for uh, popes and, and kings and queens and people who had that sort of, uh, you know, money and, and power. Right. But average everyday people in Europe and the trade also went into the Middle East, into Africa and Asia. Uh, they did, could have access to unicorn horn fragments or more commonly powder. And there's even pharmacies to this day in Eastern Europe, I believe in the Czech Republic, that are a UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site that actually has a link to Saint, you know, 400, 500 years ago when they were selling the powder of the unicorn horn. And now it's a UNESCO site, which I think is pretty, uh, pretty awesome. A place that I definitely hope to visit someday. Does anybody claim to still have one of these unicorn horns? Let's, let's say, you know, that the Pope was one of these powerful people and had a full unicorn horn. Do any of them still exist, say, in the Vatican or in, in some other, uh, let's say, a castle somewhere that some monarch had stashed away? You know, I, I wish I could say yes, but as far as I know uh, from the research that Vakash and I did for the book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn, uh, we didn't find any sort of um, evidence of people, of any of these horns or fragments of these horns um, still existing today. Uh, I think the reason that, that would make sense for this, uh, at least in terms of the fragments or the powders that they were used. Now, as to the actual horns that kings and popes and queens had in the past, um, you know, maybe they're somewhere in the Vatican or in um, royal courts uh, of Europe. But if they are, they're not advertised and they're certainly not um, known to the public. So I couldn't I definitely couldn't go on record saying that any of those um, could be accessed today. Now, the book is called The Book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn, and it was co-authored with, and you mentioned her name a couple times, uh, Vakasha Brenman, right? Brenman? Yep, yep, that's tell, it. Tell us about Vakasha's work. Uh, she was an amazing woman, uh, definitely a, a true inspiration to me. For years, she had worked as a documentary filmmaker, uh, doing uh, films about geosophy and other spiritual and esoteric topics. 
She also had a career as a producer of off-Broadway plays, a very successful visual artist, selling her work all throughout the U.S. and internationally. And, um, you know, I met her towards the last five years of her life. She passed away this May. And uh, even though she had been so accomplished in so many spheres, getting this book out was her life's mission. She started this back in the 1990s, and it was kind of a false start because she just couldn't find the right writer to work with. And it wasn't until 2000, the end of 2015 when we agreed to work with each other that the book really got started in earnest. And I think it was her, you know, once, once we had the book created and we had our, um, you know, publisher in gear, John Hunt Publishing in the UK, um, I, I think it might have been her life's mission had been accomplished. And, and with all of her uh, physical challenges, you know, she, she could go out peacefully knowing that she had accomplished her life's mission. You mentioned that you believe that the unicorn is reemerging. Do you mean that in a pop culture sense, or do you mean that we're going to start having unicorn sightings more often, more frequently after this 300 or so year drought? Well, I believe that, you know, if you look at where we are today right now with COVID-19 mm -hmm. and the economy and all the chaos, all you have to do is just look, turn on the news and you see that we are in a chaotic world. For sure. I got some bad news. It's going to get worse. It's going to get more chaotic, but it's only because we're moving out of our current age and entering into a golden age. Now, when that may be, would it be in our lifetime that we see the golden age emerge? Maybe, maybe not. I can't say for certain, but when the golden age is finally ushered in, um, according to an ancient text that we were able to access, uh, the Codex Unicornis, the unicorn is going to be, play a major part in ushering in this golden age. And when it reveals the three secret sayings, I don't know what they are. No one does. When the unicorn reveals those three secret sayings, then all of the chaos, all of the challenges, just all the hardship that everyone faces in life, um, it's going to go away. And we're all going to go to a much better state once we once that that's revealed, once the unicorn fully emerges in, in a way that no one can dispute. I need to ask you, you mentioned uh, these these sacred writings, the Codex Unicornis, I think is what you called it. Yes. What is this? Uh, yes, that's it. Uh, it's an ancient text that um, an author was able to recover. We worked very closely with him and um, working through with him and learning more about this document. It really reveals so much about the past of the unicorn and the future of the unicorn. Now, there's a lot of sources that talk about the historical evidence and the legends in terms of the last 6,000 years of human civilization. But if you want to go back to those time before recorded records or have a glimpse into the future, that's where we got our, our information about the unicorn. Uh, it's what we believe uh, its future will be. It all comes from this ancient Gnostic document called the Codex Unicornis. So where does the unicorn get its power from? Is this a, 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 a tool of God or, or something else? Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Actually, the reason why the unicorn has such magical powers and can be a, uh, you know, a, a creature that can go interdimensionally comes from the creator blessing it and, and blessing its horn. Without it, it would just be another animal, you know, same as um, any other, other creature. It'd be no different than a horse except it has a horn. But that, the creator's blessing back in that Edenic paradise is what gave it its magical power and its spiritual significance. So from the work that you've done, the research that you've done, the uh, Codex Unicornis, uh, the writings that are included in that, you believe that the unicorn is a tool of God and it's going to actually be a bit of a harbinger of the Golden Age. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a completely accurate way to summarize, uh, summarize it, yes. So what's next for you? I mean, this that's a lot of important information that probably, uh, so pro most people um, probably don't. You know, I think that... Hold on, hold on. I just want to, oh, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, most people probably didn't recognize the unicorn as being such an important creature in whether it's spiritually or uh, historically. So this is kind of, a, a, I think, uh, something new for a lot of people. I mean, do you, are, do you feel the book itself and your efforts are kind of opening the door to this idea for most people? I'd like to hope uh, that it will once uh, the book of the magical mythical unicorn comes out that people who read it and really just question, um, you know, what Bakash and I wrote. Um, I want them to come to the truth for themselves, but I do hope that it could wake up a lot of people and uh, really just alert them that the unicorn, it's not just some trivial pop culture thing, but it has a long history and it has a very important significance uh, to humanity, past, present and future. The book is called The Book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn. The website is theunicornbook.com. I'd asked you what you were working on next, uh, Alfonso. Uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, new project you've got going on. Sure. So, uh, you know, depending on uh, when COVID-19 COVID subsides, um, I'm starting, I started a project with um, lead producer Bevy Sterling called Old Forgotten Art Found. Uh, what we're doing is we are looking to find and repatriate um, art that was stolen by the Nazis during World War II. Mm. And, um, you know, we have uh, access to what's called dias, which are photographic evidence of works by some of the masters like Monet and Picasso and many other artists. And we're just going to be going on a global televised uh, hunt to try to find this art. And, uh, and once Providence is verified, return it to the rightful owners and do our part to repair uh, one of the darkest moments in history. Let's talk about that for just a second. How, do we know how much... Uh, of that stolen art still remains unrecovered? Well, in terms of our art, uh, all of it, we have about 120 dias, and, um, and none of them have been found to date. Uh, we're still working on uh, securing the funding and also just waiting for this COVID-19 to uh, subside yeah. so we can travel, work, work with international law enforcement to recover it. And, uh, you know, we're hoping to really get this going sometime in 2021 and really make an impact. What do you hope people who buy and read the book of the magical mythical unicorn, what do you hope they walk away with? I just hope that they walk away with a, uh, you know, less skepticism. I mean, as a former skeptic myself, to just open yourself up to the evidence and just, just test it for yourself. Try to communicate with the unicorn and, and test the, the validity of what we're saying and see if it resonates. Uh, I don't want people just believing whatever I say. I want people to, to really just open their minds and, and just explore it for themselves. That's what I really hope uh, comes from those who read the book, The Magical Mythical Unicorn. Alfonso, when is the book available and where can people get it? So we have a release date of August 28th, uh, but Amazon's pushed it back a little bit to October 1st because of um, you know, shipping concerns in, in our current uh, situation. But people can get it on Amazon.com. They can get it on Walmart.com. And you can pre-order your copy of the book, The Magical Mythical Unicorn, today. That's terrific. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, sharing this with us. Good luck with the book, and I hope you'll agree to come back at some point. 
Absolutely will do. And thank you so much for uh, having me on here. All right. Once again, the website is theunicornbook.com. The author, our guest tonight, Alfonso Colasuono. For the rest of the program tonight, we're going to be talking about something very, very different. Lynn Monet is a nurse, been a nurse for 34 years, also author of a book called Omnipresent. We're going to talk about her abilities. She sees interdimensional spirits and demons, has lived in a haunted house. Lynn, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's such a great honor to have you with us tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about how you got started. Um, at some point in your life, you started having paranormal experiences. When did that happen for you? When I was um, a little girl, I um, had the ability to see interdimensionally. But, of course, I was raised in the um, later 60s, early 70s. And that wasn't something as, as um, most parents would want to get out in the neighborhood, to, you know, everything was about the proverbial Joneses, mm-hmm. and they didn't want people to know that, you know, they had a kid, one of those kids in their house, so it was usually squelched in the house. A lot of times um, when I would talk about things that I would see, I would either be told that I wasn't seeing them, or I would even get in trouble at times, so I um, learned to start to ignore my ability, and um, traditional religion, as I, as I was a little bit older, even compounded the problem more so because they would tell me that what I was seeing, whether it was good or bad, was demonic and um, that I was good, that there was something wrong with me, that I was going to go to hell. So maybe 10 years old between the, the, the demon thing and the, the going to hell thing, it scared the bejesus enough out of me that I started to ignore my ability to to see, and I definitely stopped talking about it so as to appear normal. Um, and then when, I mean, I, I, I didn't see it constantly, but um, it, it lessened, and I would every once in a while still, still see a little sliver of something every now and then. But when I went and um, got involved with this house, um, it kind of reopened it full-blown again. So as a child and having these experiences, can you share with us what you were seeing and were they actual visions that you were seeing with your eyes or were these things that they were more internal and you were kind of seeing with your mind's eye? Um, no, I could see things out of my peripheral vision. Um, usually people, the house that I grew up in here, the house in the neighborhood that I grew up in had some issues. It was a in Florida, an area where a lot of Seminole Indians and things had gone through. There were mounds and things. So I suspect that there was probably, you know, some burial grounds and things in there, but I could see things clearly out of my um, peripheral vision of people or, you know, different things like that. And when I'd say, Mom, who's who's that man in our living room? And she'd be like, there is no man. You know, yeah, you're, you're, you're not seeing what you think you're seeing. And I'm like, well, yeah. Um, you know, I, I even remember one time pulling up on um, um, pulling up on and, and, and um an accident and noticing that there was a person that was, I thought, you know, in, 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 in my age that had ketchup on them. So, you know, I made mention of that too. And, um, um, you know, of course it's like nobody else could see what I was seeing. So I would get in trouble and I, um, you know, that that's how it all kind of started, but I could see them very vividly, very clearly out of my peripheral vision. Would they talk to you too? Could you hear them? You know, I never really had the ability to to talk to them, or maybe I shut that down. Um, now that my both of my parents have um, crossed over, I can hear them. Um, they do come in every once in a while and, and talk and, and, and guide me with some things. 
But um, no, I, it's it's not like a like a conversation going back and forth. It's kind of just little things that would come in. Um, for instance, I my mother had passed away of cancer about seven years ago, and I one time I was just thinking of her, and because I, I was making brownies, and I, I said, "Mom, you know, don't you ever miss?" the taste of your potato salad and, and your brownies that you used to make. And she just very clearly through my mind came through and said, well, here all that we have to do is, is think about it. And the sensation comes to us as if, as if we're eating it because, of course, we don't eat things here. Um, but that's what she said. And it, and it made sense to me, um, you know, hearing you know hearing that, being able to have her answer my question. Sure. yeah. Um, as a child, having these experiences and being told by the adults in your life that they aren't real and uh, you need to stop and you need to not mention it, you need to not talk about it, forcing it, forcing you to kind of keep it undercover, uh, did that actually result in you learning how to control it? Or did you just have to go through that part of your life just ignoring what you were seeing? Um, for the most part, I had to ignore it, and it seemed like it, at around age 10 um, was when I decided, you know, that I, I'm not telling people when I see something, and I'm going to ignore it. And it kind of, it, it kind of caused it to subside. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it, I didn't, I didn't see things as much, and um, so you know, I appeared more normal than that, you know, to other people, and and of course that I wasn't getting in trouble with the church, and I wasn't <laughs> getting in trouble with my parents at that point. When you saw these things, these visions, were they trying to communicate with you or were you just kind of getting a glimpse of them going through whatever they were going through and they were just oblivious to your presence? Um, most of the time it was they were oblivious to my, my presence. Most of the time they were just going through what they, whatever had been there previously, you know, they were just yeah. going through the motions of whatever they did um, in didn't even know, you know, that I was there. And even even still now, I've had, in, in the nursing field, I've had some, for instances, of things. Um, I had been on a show, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say a person's name, but um, sure, that's fine. Linda Moulton Howe had had me on because of a question that I had asked her about aliens blending with, with humans, and was that possible? Because there was one patient that I had, I'd worked at this place for 10 years, and I had one patient, it was a upscale um, um, retirement home type setting, and it was, I was a nurse on the skilled unit, and I had this, this particular client for two years. And uh, three, on three different occasions, I, I went into her room, and I noticed that there were these, these they, they didn't, I mean, they had arms and legs, and they were standing there, and they were like in these little white, white, I don't know what they were. They were dressed in these white things, and they were all the exact same height. Hmm. And they would—they were like next to her bed. When I would walk in to give her her medication, they were like standing next to her bed, almost making the motion of like a switchboard operator, pulling things out and plugging things in. And whenever I would go to take her blood pressure before giving her her cardiac meds, um, I had one of those those wrist monitor ones that were battery operated, and no matter. You know, it, it would be dead within, by the time I would get it on her wrist, whatever was in the room was draining oh, wow. batteries from it. So I would have to take her blood pressure manually. 
And there was one particular time that one of them actually, they, they were totally ignoring me. They, it, they were in a completely different frequency interdimensionally, and they didn't think that I could see them. So they ignored me being in the room, and I'm watching this stuff going on, and I'm like, this is weird. So one of them actually walked through me, and I actually said, excuse me out loud. <laughs> And I, because I'm like, excuse me. And yeah. the woman's like, oh, no, you didn't do anything. She thought I was talking to her, and she didn't seem to be aware of what was going on. But I had never seen that before. And so that was one of my questions to Linda. And, again, I had that client for two years, and it wasn't something that happened every time I went in her room. But it did happen on three different occasions spread out over that two-year period. And... um and it was the same thing. Only one of the times that I went in there and those those beings were there doing whatever it was they were doing, there was one that was taller than the other ones. But there were multi, there were like as many as five, six and seven of them in the room at one time. And usually they were all unison. They they had the same outfit on. They had they and they were just very busy. Like I said, it looked almost like they were pulling, like an old fashioned. Um, telephone operator where they used to plug in the yeah. party lines and yeah. stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it looked like they were pulling things out from her in different areas and, and plugging them back in so i i wondered about that because i've seen a lot of um in my in the field that i've been in for the latter part of my nursing years 17 of those i was in ger- the geriatrics and so i saw a lot of pe- people pass away sure and um, with that being said, I am writing a book about that right now. It should be out next summer. But um, with that being said, I was able to see interdimensionally, being able to peer into the other side and see the preparations that were being made by the souls that were awaiting the embodied soul's arrival to the other side, as well as from a medical standpoint, being in, in embodied watching the soul embody transition into death and crossing over. I have actually seen, You've seen this. The, them leave their body and go over to the other side. Really? Yes. Uh, there's so I have so many questions about that experience alone. We would have a whole other show to talk about that. But my, <laughs> my, my curiosity for you is... Having seen that, having been witness to that, has that answered for you forever the question of uh, what happens when we die, A, and B, is there, you know, is there something after death? Yes. No questions. And and not only that, the thing is, is, you know, there seems to be a competition with traditional religions about who's who's the correct religion and who's the one that's going to make it to heaven. And don't, don't tell them that you're here because they think they're the only ones. I have seen so many different denominations of faith that have passed and there are similar similar um, stages to the transitioning and certain things that happen consistently with all of them prior to them crossing over that I've got news for them. Most everybody goes. There's only been one person um, out of probably 60 people that I've seen naturally pass over that that didn't have things happen that way. And that person literally fought death for 10 days before they finally passed. And I wasn't there the day that he passed away. So I don't know what came to get him, but kind of glad I wasn't there. 
So one of the things we've talked about on the show before, and I always relate my own personal experiences to this conversation, is as somebody's approaching death, particularly if they're infirm, uh, whether it's in a hospital, maybe they're home, often they'll start talking to people that I can't see or they or the person with them can't see. My mother did this. She started mm-hmm. talking to people and asking me, who's the man in the corner with the hat and things like that. And I, of course, didn't see anybody, didn't sense anybody. Are you? Have you seen that happening? And are these the, I don't know what you would call them, the the greeters that are coming to welcome the soul as it leaves the body? Absolutely. I will tell you a little story that I will share with you. It's a, it's a spoiler alert on my next book, but I am going to share it with you. Okay. When, when my mother passed away, she had battled a mesothelioma, and I was actually the only one with her that day. Uh, my brother was traveling from Florida and just wasn't able to get there in time. And um, as I was sitting on the opposite side of uh, I was sitting on, on the left side of her bed, on the right side of her bed, I could see movement. Because there's kind of a, a rippling to the air or a waffling effect to the air when there are spirits. And sometimes when you can see like a shoulder peek out or a foot peek out or something. But there was like a veil, and the veil started to efface. And I could see, as it got thinner and thinner, I could see more so into that other side. I could see the people moving around, and they were preparing. They were preparing a, a beautiful welcoming for her. Um, and uh, so as the end part towards the head of my mother's bed thinned out more than the rest, I saw my grandmother, my mother's mother, come in, and she looked just the same as she did the way that I remembered her because they usually present themselves the way that you remember them. So when she came in, she, my mother, um, just to back up a little bit, my mother at that time, she was not opening her eyes anymore, but she was still responsive to sound. A lot of times the spirit will go in and out and test the waters. My mom, she stayed for the whole time until it was time to go. She did not do that, so it was a little bit different, but... She was mouthing words and moving her eyebrows to anyone that came into the room. But, she, again, she wasn't able to open her eyes. She wasn't able to speak anymore at that point. So when my, when my grandmother entered the room, she came over to the bedside, started stroking the inside of my mother's forearm, and she leaned forward and started whispering something or saying something in my mother's ear because, of course, they don't speak with words. They speak with thoughts. And that's with, with most, uh, a lot of different spe- entities and, and, you know, aliens or whatever else they speak with thought. So she leaned forward to my mom's ear, and my mom immediately started moving her mouth and her eyebrows. So whatever my grandmother was saying mm. to her, she could hear. Mm-hmm. So then when my grandmother stood up away, my mom continued moving her mouth and her eyebrows, and then she stopped, and my grandmother leaned forward again. And this, she did this three different times, and she's continuing to stroke my mom's arm. And behind my grandmother, I see this frantic hand waving behind her. And all of a sudden I look and I lost, um, I, I had a younger sister that was murdered when she was 20 oh, and um, uh, by a jealous boyfriend. And there she was. She was behind my grandmother. She was frantically waving, trying to get my attention. I could smell her perfume in the room. She wore uh, Latisse, which was not a common perfume even back in the 80s. And um, and it was, but it was very distinctly her, and I could see her, and I actually got to feel her come around towards 
towards me, and I could, again, smell her perfume so strong. Once that happened, it seemed like the whole veil had effaced completely so that I could look directly into the other side. And the feeling of elation that came from from that side is totally undescribable. It is, it, is, it is like the most satisfying food, the most satisfying whatever you can think of to be able to receive. And in that moment, you know, I'm thinking, hey, you know, you guys are having a party. I want to come too, but not that I wanted to, to pass away. I just wanted to go for the day, you know. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking into this, and all of a sudden I notice these spirits that have now stood next to my mother's bed, and they're in a huddle, almost like, like a football huddle. And um, as they started to stand up away, my mother was standing in the center of them. It was almost like they wanted to stabilize her spiritual feet. And um, I'm, I'm looking, and I'm grinning from ear to ear because of the elation and the feeling and the beauty of it all, and there's my mother, and she's not struggling. And then all of a sudden I look over and notice that my mom has stopped breathing. And, again, I'll back up and say this, too. When my mother, my mother's mother and my sister came into the room, I told my mother, I said, Mom, Graham and Robin are here. It's time to go. She stopped breathing within 10 minutes. Wow. Yes. So she was free to go. So I'm watching this on the other side of the room. And there she is standing in the middle of this of this huddle as it opens and unfolds. And one by one, I'm watching these people greeting her. And she is just beaming. And I'm, and, and I'm, I'm looking and I'm smiling. And then all of a sudden, I realize that she, her, she has stopped breathing. And I'm sitting here smiling. And what is the nurse going to think if she walks in? And my yeah. mother's just died, and I'm grinning from ear to ear. So I went ahead and I called the nurse. And I said, hey, my mom has... Um, you know, she has stopped breathing. Can you come in and, you know, check her and see if her heart has stopped or whatever? And so they did. And, of course, when the nurse walked in the room, she walked through all of the festivities that was going on, and she was totally unaware of it. Right. And they lingered. And I, saw, I recognized people that were on the other side that I knew in this lifetime. And also there were people that I didn't recognize, but those people my mother did recognize. And she, it was like a huge family reunion for her. And I just, you know, I felt because I knew where she was and it was almost, you know, it's almost like a little kid when there's a separation from their parents, like if there's a divorce or something, the kid's okay. They feel better if they know where mm -hmm. mommy went and where they're staying or where daddy went or where they're staying. They just want to know that they're okay. Right. And as an adult, um, to know where she was, you know, it, it really, really, I mean, the, the grief, and, and I was very close to my mother. Um, the, it minimized the, the grieving process. I have not grieved. I have not had grief for the loss at any point. Um, I, I'm just so thrilled for her that she's able to be there. And, and the thing is, is that she still is able to communicate with, with me on this, on this side, on this plane. Well, for people that don't have the ability to witness what you witnessed, there's a great deal of comfort, and I'm sure there was for you as well, yeah. knowing that there's something like that happening at the time of the passing of a loved one. Because while we all mourn when we lose someone close to us, knowing that they might be greeted by friends and relatives that predecease them, and you know, there's love and there's warmth there helping them transition, that is a very powerful and comforting idea. 
It is. And, you know, um, the way that the whole thing was set up, I remember looking. I actually got to glimpse in, and there are, were some colors there that are just not describable on this earth. On the other side, they'd have to come up with a whole other color spectrum. But, um, you know, there were different things, like, for instance, the light that came from the room was like standing under a shade tree looking into the light where where you could see the light, but, but you weren't blind, you know, you weren't like squinting from it. And the light seemed to come from the air itself, for lack of a better word. I don't even know if there is air there, but it seemed to generate from inside itself. There wasn't like a sunshine or anything like, like that. It just, it just was. And uh, the... Um, you know, there was this beautiful tree, and they had this table set up, and I could actually see this, like, white cloth-type thing on it. And, and, and it didn't even strike me um, funny that there was no food on it until I had asked my mom that one time, you know, why, you know, don't you miss the, the brownies and potato salad? And then she made mention that, that they just have to think of it there. So that then made sense of why there was no food on the table since they seemed to have prepared um, so much. But she... One by one. And, you know, I I never knew why people would talk about cracking a window. I thought, yeah. you know, that's, that's superstitious. And maybe this was just by coincidence that they went in the direction because the windows were behind me. And when literally they were in the room probably for 15 minutes with my mom, each person coming up and greeting and, you know, and my mom getting to hug my sister you know, and, and you witnessed and, all this? You witnessed your mom hugging your sister? I did. Wow. And her mother. Wow. Yeah, that part. How did you not eyes. break down into uncontrollable sobbing of joy even? Because of, I, I, and I did, I, with, with my sister, her hugging my sister, that, that was very emotional for me because of the way that she died. And um, that was hard. Uh, and I also have some, you know, down the road, I have some stories to tell about her with that whole incident, because there is a difference between when a person passes naturally versus suddenly. There, there is a completely different way that that is handled on the, on the other side um, in, in some cases. I mean, sometimes they know that they're coming, but still it's a, it's a shock sometimes to the the soul to be just ejected, you know, from the body in the case of an accident or in the case of like my sister, you know, being murdered. And, um, you know, they're not, sometimes the soul's not ready to go. They're like, wait, Hey, wait a minute. You know, I, yeah. I, I packed my lunch. I didn't get to <laughs> eat it. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. they're still kind of in the mind and then the frame of mind of, of being here. But, um, and it, it like I said, it's uh, going to be, Coming up in my next book. Yeah, it, it, I, I did note it, note that your uh, second book is uh, talks about the act of dying and death and crossing over in the afterlife. So thank you for sharing that with us. We're talking with Lynn Monet tonight, uh, author of the book Omnipresent. Lynn, we need to talk about the book. Why did you decide to write it? Well, I decided to write it because um, I realized after. First of all, just just to back up a little bit, um, as a single mom, I had been looking for a house, mm-hmm. and um, of course, on my single mother income, I was limited as to what I could get. Either it needed a lot of repair or was in a not so great area. So, this house I had been looking for almost a year and a half, and uh, I had the same real estate agent, and I get this call from my real estate agent, and the words that came out of her mouth should have made me run at that time, but she stated to me 
that her colleague had just come from a house that she had taken pictures of, had not even been listed in the MLS yet. They didn't have a chance yet. It would be up that afternoon. And that this house sounded too good to be, almost too good to be true, and it was in my price range. Well, I should have taken that and ran with it, but I didn't. So, um, you know, she and I met an hour later, and we went to the house, and, of course, she was giving me the the uh, paperwork to, to look at, and it was a 2,400-square-foot house with three-bedroom, two-bath, formal dining room, breakfast nook. It was on a half-acre Florida flat lot, and um, it just, I, I became, you know, I'm like, okay, there's got to be something wrong here. Either it's next to a dump and it stinks, right. or, or the neighbors have a sinkhole in their yard, or it's in a really, really bad area. And it just so happened that it was in a nice area. It was on a dead-end street and what I call a trick-or-treat neighborhood because the houses were spaced not too close together, but close enough that kids could go from house mm-hmm. to house. And um, so anyway, um, I, I ended up, you know, obviously buying the house. And within the day that, that I got the closing on the house, um, my I my I had taken my children back, and my children, of course, observed things, and their friends observed things before I I was even willing to admit it. But um, everything just took a horrible turn at that point, and I started to realize that there was something inhumane already inhabiting my my new dream house, and it and it put me instead of you know turning my dream home into a, a wonderful home for my family, I had to then immediately go into protective and survival modes um, to protect my family. So with that being said, the reason that I wrote the book was because um, I, I found out in the process how, how hard it is to actually find help when you need it to help you with a situation like that. It's also expensive. And in the price range that I could afford, there were a lot of people that would claim that they could resolve my infestation by getting the entities out of my house. But they did not, and they could not, and oftentimes their attempts made things worse, and, you know, a refund was never an option because it was usually cash that you, you know, that you would pay. Now, so, I just I want to clarify something. Did you say inhumane or inhuman? I'm sorry, inhuman. 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 Yeah, very no, different. Inhuman. Yes. Yes. No, inhuman. I'm sorry. So the experiences you had in this particular home are what you ended up writing about in Omnipresent? Yes. Now, as somebody who have had been experiencing um, spirit sightings, basically, all of your life, I would expect that you would have gone into any one of these circumstances rather prepared for handling it. But it sounds like this was even more than you could handle. It was. It, it, it was. Um, and and uh, just to back up a little bit, too, you know, for years I had shut myself down. Um, and this, this whole situation just opened everything up full blown. Um, the very first day that I went into this house, I, uh, it was a split level house. There was a foyer, there were stairs that would descend and stairs that would ascend up to the main level. And I decided to, you know, go on upstairs and kind of take a peek in while the realtor was still fighting with the key in the, in the lock, which that in itself down the road turns out to be a huge sign that there's a problem. But anyway, um, so as I'm going up the stairs in my peripheral vision, 
I see this young man hanging in the stairwell um, right over the wrought iron. And this was later verified by the next-door neighbor who had lived on the street. It was the first house on the street. He, he said that he lived there before they had even paved the roads. It was dirt roads. And um, he remembers the family that built the house, and it was in 1976 that the house was built. And um, he said that the, the family was, the parents were actively going through a divorce at the time and that their son had hung himself in the house. Wow. Um, I mean, you, you've experienced some things that, that give you an insight that most people don't have. When you see something as tragic as that, do you see a silver lining anywhere? Well, you know, I tried to ignore it. I thought, you know, I mean, we were we were moving from a single wide trailer um, that I had to buy out of necessity post divorce with my credit ruined. I had to live mm-hmm. there, and rebuild my credit, and um, I just I, I had to get out of there. So I was trying to deny it. And of course, you know, some of the things that I had learned about religion and things like that is, is that if you don't think about demons, they can't harm you. And then you do, you know, the universal law thing, and you can tell them to go away, and all of these things that I had been taught. So when I first saw it, I just thought that it was was a slip of my imagination. I, I ignored it because I was so enamored with the house at that time. And um, so after look, going through the house and, and seeing everything, I wanted to make a bid on the house. And But I wanted to come back that afternoon and bring my children. So that afternoon we came back, and my kids, of course, went upstairs. They're running down the hallway gleefully picking out their bedrooms and they came back to me and asked me if they could go downstairs. And I said, of course. And I'm standing on the main level with the realtor. And within about five minutes, my 13-year-old daughter comes back and she says, I don't want to live here. Ooh. And I'm like, what? You know, at first I didn't think that I heard her correctly. So I asked, I said, what did you say? She says, I, I don't like this house. I don't want to live here. And, of course, I'm thinking... You know, she's a teenager. She doesn't want to leave her friends. She doesn't right. want to leave her school. I'm rationalizing it. And, and it embarrassed me because I'm standing next to this agent that's been trying to help me find a house for over a year and a half. And um, so I, I didn't listen, and I should have listened to her. So you ended up moving into this home. Yes. Uh, you already had some warning signs. You were, already, you're, you were probably on high alert at that point. What started to happen? And and. Was it dangerous? Well, in the beginning, it was not dangerous. It was things that could be rationalized away. Uh, for instance, when we closed on the house, we went and um, I brought a makings for taco dinner for our first dinner in our house. We were going to have a floor picnic, and I'm in the kitchen browning the, the hamburger, and my daughter comes up to me, and she said, what did you want? And I said, well, honey, I didn't call you. And she said, yes, you did. She said, you called me twice. After you called me the first time, I I answered you, and then you called me again. What did you want? And I said, I swear I didn't call you. And she said, I swear you did. And, of course, then my son comes in. He's seven years old. He's peering into the kitchen from underneath her arm, and he says, Mommy, you did call her. I heard you call her, too. So I'm, I'm, you know, rationalizing this and saying, oh, well, you know, it's dinner time. Maybe there's another person with the same name. It's my daughter has name is Brittany, and it was very popular back then. Everybody was named Brittany and Jason. And I said, you know, maybe it was some other mother that had come outside calling for her Brittany to come home and eat. And I'm sure that we'll get to meet this person, and you guys will make good friends. So let it go. And then I 
took my kids home that night, got them ready for school. The next day, took them to school. I had purchased a house in March, so I didn't want to change my kids from, from their schools. They only had eight weeks of school left, and I, so I wanted them to finish out their year and then start fresh um, in, in the fall in their new schools. And so I come back to the house, and I go inside, go upstairs, put my purse down. I'm there. I'm going to be pulling up some carpeting because I'm having some wooden flooring put in. And um, I notice that the, the, uh, the light on is inside of the oven. It's on. The stove light, the, the vent thing, the light is on. The ceiling light is on. Now, there's no furniture in the house, but as I walked through the house, every single light was turned on in that house. And I thought to myself in that moment, I thought, well, you know, maybe they're on a timer or maybe a neighbor was entrusted with the key. And after we left, they might have come over. They might not have realized that the house was sold. Um, and maybe they turned the lights on. So I went across the street. I introduced myself to the neighbors and I said, I'm, you know, I'm the new owner. And do you know if anybody's been entrusted with a key? Because when I went to the house today, every single light was turned on in the house. And they, of course, um, they, were, they were like a retirement age couple, and like in their 60s, and they were telling me how they had been walking on the street the night before and that the only lights that they noticed were the lights in the walkway, which are solar lights that would come on at dark anyway. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I went back across the street, and I'm thinking, well, you know, the house is new to me. The, the lights must be on a timer. I'm sure eventually I'll figure out why these lights were on, you know, type thing. So I, um, I finished up pulling up carpet, and I went home that day, and I went and picked my kids up from school, and they're, of course, wanting to come and do a sleepover, and just different things continued to happen that weren't that extreme. I went back the next, uh, I went back the next day and found that all of the locks were unlocked in the house, and hmm. I'm like, well, that's impossible. So just, little, little, just little mischievous things yes, in the yes. beginning. Yeah, well, the thing was is when I left after the light thing, um, you know, I went all through the house and made sure everything was turned off. And, you know, with kids, if one or two lights are on, you could be like, oh, well, maybe one of the kids doubled right. back and, and left it on. Or right. maybe they left the water trickling or maybe. But there were times that I was there by myself and the water would turn on or something, you know, and and, and uh, I knew that, that I had not done it. So um, the... The, the day with, the, with the, um, the lights, I had trouble locking the deadbolt lock. It would not turn, so I actually opened the door, and I um, locked the knob lock with, with the, the little button thing mm -hmm. and closed the door, and I went to my car. But the next day when I came back after dropping my kids off at school, I went to put my key into the knob lock, and I didn't even turn it, and the door just pushed right open. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, okay, well, maybe the reason why the deadbolt wasn't turning was because I didn't have the door all the way in the door jam. So I went into the house. Again, I'm rationalizing it. And right. um, I went upstairs, put my purse down, and I was going to start painting the ceilings because now I had pulled up the carpet, and they were come to, I had people lined up to come and put wooden flooring into the, the house. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to put a nice coat of white paint all over these ceilings to freshen them up before anything gets put down. And that way, if it drips, it's no big deal. So I went to open the sliding glass doors, and I had distinctly remember locking them up the night before, and the pin was out and dangling, and the door was unlocked. And I thought, okay, maybe I didn't. So I went down 
to the, um, the garage to open it to bring in more boxes that I had loaded with my car, and the double door garage doors were open. But again, I didn't have garage doors ever before, and I, maybe I could have turned them the wrong way and thought that I locked them when I did not. Right. There's always enough doubt that you're not right. quite sure what's happening. Right, exactly. So when I'm standing in the garage at that point, I there, there was this door that was also leading into the garage, but it was leading into a section that was like a little workshop. And I noticed on that door that the chain was dangling to the side. And I thought, uh-uh. Now, I know that one was locked because I had stacked boxes up against that door three feet deep. I am five foot nine. The boxes came up to my chin. And I remember thinking to myself, the only way that that could have been unlocked is if somebody was inside this house. They would have had to have moved all of those boxes out from in front of that door, unlock that chain, and then push the boxes back. So back over to the neighbor's house I go, and I asked him, I said, did you notice any kids or anybody playing in the yard last night? Um, When I left yesterday, um, I had closed everything up, but when I came over today, all of the doors in the house were unlocked. Somebody had to have been inside of the house. I gave him my phone number at that point in time, and I said, look, um, I'm getting ready to have workers come in. I'm not going to be changing the locks right now because I'm going to wait until all of the workers finish the work because I have to leave them with keys, and then I'll change the lock right before we move in. And, um, you know, I said, but would you please call me if you notice kids playing in the yard, if you notice lights on when my car is not there, and I'll let you know, you know, call 911, and I'll be there in 20 minutes. So... Um, they agreed to do that, and that was fine too. But so all of these little things kept happening until finally, um, the worst thing that that happened in that house is my friend Ellen was clawed to the point of bleeding on her stomach and back while she stood next to me in the kitchen. She was what? She was clawed. Clawed. To the point of bleeding, while she stood next to me in that in that oh, kitchen. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. Uh, how long were you in the house altogether? Well, I, we only spent two nights there. Oh, seriously? So you yes. you 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 were prepared. You prepared to move in. You moved in. You only stayed there two nights. Well, actually, because I bought it in March and we weren't going to move in until the summer, I was having renovations done. So we were between the two places. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we still had a place to sleep. I'm sorry. Excuse me. That's okay. We still had a place. To go home and sleep, especially since I had purchased brand new furniture for my kids' bedrooms. So the old furniture I was going to give to the people that bought bought the place if they wanted it. And um, so we were we were going back and forth. But I, I owned it for eight months, but we only actually slept in the house two nights. And um, the second night was so bad that I didn't even take my children back. I had 13 different denominations of religion come in there to clear the house. I had 13 witnesses that were either saw the entities and or were attacked by them as well. Um, I had a, um, a paranormal group from Georgia come up, led by um, an Episcopalian priest named Andrew Calder, who um, came to the house and actually got pictures of the entities. He, he did a blessing. He did the EVP readings. He had the, all of that um, and verified that I did, in fact, have an infestation, a demonic infestation in that house. Now, as somebody who is sensitive to these things, did you see any of this? Did you see? I did. 
You did. I did. I did. But, you know, um, and again, I was trying to rationalize it because here I had just signed on the dotted line for a 30-year mortgage. Right. What was I going to do? Right. So, you know, it got to the point where, yes, I did. I did. The second night um, I saw something. We actually took, um, just to back up a little bit, there were two nights that we slept there. The first night that we slept there, my my daughter brought a friend along to do a sleepover, and that girl... um, Woke up at about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, wanted to leave. She mm-hmm. wanted to go home. She did not want to stay there. And she wouldn't say why. She just, something freaked her out. The second night that we spent there, I took, brought the dog along. The dog did not want to go in the house. I had to carry her into the house. And um, I had brought large queen-size blow-up mattresses and put them in the master bedroom with a TV and a, a, a VHS, a little VCR thing um, on the TV so my kids could watch uh, a movie and um, I was I was painting in the bathroom, and uh, my kids had fallen asleep. And I it was about 11:30 at night. I had gone into the kitchen and I was cleaning my paintbrushes. And as I came out of the kitchen, um, I was the kitchen the kitchen opening. Then there's this wrought iron railing that kind of blocks you know from falling down to the descending stairs, and then there's an opening for the ascending stairs, and then you go back into a hallway. So as I'm coming out of the kitchen in my peripheral vision, I catch the view of this this horrific thing that was definitely not something from this earth. And it came up the ascending stairs, flashed across the double entry doors, came up the second set of stairs right in front of me and shot down the hallway. And of course, I'm standing there frozen and I'm thinking... Okay, um, I've been painting and I've been breathing fumes. My <laughs> blood sugar might be a little bit low. Uh, maybe a car drove underneath a light outside and caused that reflection to shoot down like that. And then I heard my dog growling. And when I went into down the hallway, the, the dog, of course, was in the master bedroom with my kids. And I went down the hallway. My dog was standing fixated on the opening of that door and her hair I've never seen her hair stand up like that on her back, and she was growling. And I came in the door, and I kind of petted her, tried to soothe her. And, um, you know, she only put her ears back for a minute. And then finally I thought maybe she had to go outside, so I took her outside. Again, she wouldn't come in. I had to carry her in. And finally I took a shower and settled settled in to to bed. And when we woke up the next morning, I asked my daughter how she slept, and she said, that she had not slept very well, that she felt like something had been standing in that doorway staring at her the whole night. Wow. So uh, the culmination of all of that, um, mm-hmm. after that second night, you decided to leave the house for good. Well, yeah, I, I then decided to try to get a blessing done okay. after, um, you know, it, when I stepped away from the house, and I know it doesn't really make sense because of the ability that I have, but at that point in time, the ability that I had was still kind of dormant. It was kind of coming back open with seeing these creatures over and over again, and there was a like a desensitizing process that kind of went with, with that because most people are like, I would have been out of there. And it's like, but you don't understand. You know, I was tied into a 30-year mortgage, single mom, you know, I didn't have the money to be able to afford to pay an $800 a month mortgage payment for those things to live in this house that I just bought, plus pay for a second home for me and my children to live in. So um, I had to do something. So I um, 
once the clawing thing happened with with Ellen, which there's a story around that, I I um she and I had to go back to the house because a worker had left so quickly that he had left the house not secured, and that's when that happened. But um and I couldn't get workers to stay there except for one guy finally because he was stoned all the time. But anyway. <laughs> I guess he carried his own demons, so he was oblivious. But it didn't matter to me as long as he didn't do it around me, around my kids. My kids weren't going there anymore, and if he could finish the work so that I could sell it and get out of there. But um, I finally came home, and I started going through the yellow pages to churches to see if I could get somebody to come over and bless the house. I was determined. At that point, I knew that there was an issue. I couldn't deny it anymore. So I went one by one through the yellow pages of the churches, and every single one, either they referred me to the Catholics, or I had I had one or two of them that said to me, well, if you were going to our church, you wouldn't be having this problem. Oh, that's and, nice. Yeah, or they assumed that because I was a single mother at the time that I must be promiscuous, which I was not. Oh, I actually, you know, had dedicated my time to my children and hadn't even been out on a date in four years. Mm. So, um, you know, all of these things, these accusations and, and these, they, they, they continuously, you know, being cut off and hanging up the phone on me. Um, finally, I found a Presbyterian minister, which at the time that was also my, my faith was Presbyterian. And um, he, was, he was willing to help me. But even within his own church, he told me that the Bible thumpers scared him worse than the, than the things in my house. So... Um, with that being said, also, that's when I had that paranormal group contacted from Georgia that came out. But, I mean, I had so many different people through there, and I was hoping, I was really hoping that my efforts would work, that a blessing would take care of it, because I was told then, you know, some of the people that believe in universal law, well, all you have to do is tell them to leave. Well, yeah. that didn't work. Um, you know, and, How do you know and, it didn't work? If you didn't stay in, spend another night in the house... How are you certain it didn't work? Well, because when I tried to do it, um, when Ellen was clawed in the kitchen and I told them to leave and commanded them to leave in the name of Jesus Christ, they simply moved out of the room and hovered in the doorway. That that incident where your friend was clawed happened mm-hmm. after the, you spent the two nights there? Yes. Okay. Um, in retrospect, did you go back and ever talk to the people that either lived or owned the house prior to you? No, but the funny thing is, is that um, when the house was listed, the real estate agent told me that they, these people, they had moved because the husband had to transfer jobs and that they were a, a far distance away, like out of state or something, and they were motivated sellers. And of course, them being moved out was ideal for me because, you know, then that meant I didn't have to wait to move in. So... Um, so I was told all of this, and at the closing, when the people showed up, it turned out that they had only moved like ten minutes from the house into her into the the wife's parents' house. Hmm. The couple was living there with their two children. They hadn't left their jobs. They were working in the same place. And as I started to find this out, I thought, oh well, you know, maybe they couldn't afford it. Maybe it was a fine. You know, I'm not going to pry. I'm just so grateful to get out of my single white trailer and get to move into this beautiful home. Um, with my kids, and I, I was talking to the wife who would not make eye contact with me. She kept shuffling her feet and looking really? at the door. Yes. And I said to her, I said, oh, well, I'm going to, 
you know, you've got that off-white carpeting in there. That's not going to work out great with kids, so I'm going to go ahead and put wooden flooring in there. And she looked down at her feet, and she said, that's what we wanted to do. Mm. And I didn't question it. So I know that they knew. I, I know for a fact that they knew. But, you know, what do you – I mean, you start talking about stuff like that, you know, people right. are going to start thinking you're crazy. <laughs> right. So you don't, you, know, you don't do that. And um, on the flip side – um, I did sell the house. I um, realized that I could not send it, sell it to a family with children because of one of the things that occurred when some people with children did come. But um, a couple from Florida, a retired couple from Florida had come up, and they fell in love with it. It was a cash buy. And um, as we were leaving, we, they'd come in, they'd signed some papers, with me, and then we were setting up everything to go in front of the um, the real the real estate attorney to do the closing, and um, they were coming down the the stairs from the main level into the foyer, and I overhear the wife say to her husband, um, "Why did you push me?" Because she stumbled on the stairs, and he said, "I didn't push you," and she said, "Yes, you did," and he said, "Honey, I am three steps back from you. I I can't even reach, you know, where you're at to to push you," and she said, "Well, I don't know what happened then, but." I knew what had happened. I knew that the things were active in the house, and so when they came out of the house, I, 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 I couldn't, and my conscience wouldn't let me not say something, because I didn't want to have done to, to do to somebody else what had been done to me, even though yeah. I understood why, you know, the, the people had to move, you know, and they sold it to me. They couldn't afford to live in two places either. So um, I asked him, I said, uh, do you believe in ghosts? And they both emphatically stated, no, we're Baptist. We don't believe in those sorts of things. We don't talk about those sorts of things. We are totally protected. We do not even discuss the devil. I said, okay. You know, well, I mean, I would have told them the truth <laughs> if they had asked me. Where is, was the house in Florida? No, the house was in um, East Flat Rock, North Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah, and I moved up from Florida, so I didn't know that that whole area is haunted is, is all get out until after I bought the house. Then I started hearing about the books that had been written on it and about the playhouse that's haunted there <clears throat> and all of those Indians that went through there and the Civil War that went through there and they, the witches that were hung out that way. Um, you know, if, if I had known, of course, that the house was haunted, I would have never have, have moved in there. But that whole area out there is, um, is very interesting and very active. You... Um when did you decide to write about this? First of all, how long ago did all this take place with the home? And when did you decide to write about it? Well, it was it was back in 2005 that I bought the house. I owned it for eight months mm -hmm. and then sold it. Um, I started writing the book. I, I then had a child in the interim, so I was a busy mom with a baby and uh, had my third child. And so after when she became about four years old, I started to write it. But the thing, the thing about the book is, is that um, after I wrote it the first time, I had asked a couple of my friends and colleagues to proofread the book to see if they thought that it would even be something good enough to publish. So I had eight friends that were willing to do it, and the first four that read, read the book, one by one they start calling me. My lights are flickering. <laughs> my kids' boys are turning on and off. Yep. Uh, the radio just shut itself off in the other room. So I realized in that moment that I needed to do something 
with the book. So the book starts with a prayer of your choice, and I put the Lord's Prayer in there for anybody that just did, you know, to make it easy Mm -hmm. if they didn't have one, and also at the end. And I had each of the pages in that book individually blessed, and it is sealed with a cross on the page. In the writing of that book, the the, uh, transcript actually disappeared Twice. I had to rewrite it a third time, and that's why it got published, you know, later, you know, not as soon as the first, you know, when I first wrote it. And what, but, um, what, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. What was your What was your intention when you decided to write it? Did you feel it was important to share the story because you wanted to warn other people? Did yeah. you Did you feel it was important that, that you uh, that people understand what exists in the world? I mean, you must have had some motivations. Yes, you know, and and the thing is, too, is once I started talking about it, instead of people thinking that I was crazy because, you know, they they knew me, and they started to come forward with their own stories, and some people would come forward even asking for help. But the thing is, is part of the reason why I wrote the book is because there is such a, such, there's just no real help out there for this sort of thing. And in the last chapter, I had put this, this, um, chapter in there with this technique that people can use to determine whether there are, you know, demons or spirits in the house. I don't recommend that you move in the house with a spirit, even if it is one that is not not a bad spirit, um, because they have an energy pull to them, and it will disturb your sleep, and then you're disturbed sleep over a period of time, you get depressed, and then you have health problems, and da-da-da-da-da. So it's not really a good idea. And also, I wrote in there how that there is a protocol for it. There is a protocol of behavior um, and what they feed on, that they feed on anger and fear, and they can create depression. They can create problems in your marriage. They, you know, all of these things that they can do. And in addition to that, because I was a mother with children, and because children, in, in my experience, between newborn and age five, they have no filters. So a lot of them can see inter- interdimensionally. You might yeah. hear them talking about their invisible friend. But the thing is, is there, there is, if they are actively in a house that is active with, with any kind of demonic or spiritual activity and the child is disturbed by it, the worst thing that the parents could do, first of all, when a kid comes to them and consistently doesn't just talk about pink elephants, but it's the same thing. The man, the man with the blue shirt, the man with the blue shirt or the group of people, the lady, the man, and the girl with the yellow on. Mm-hmm. You know, and they were, they're repeating it, the same thing over and over. It's really, really important for parents to find out if they're bothered by these presences. And the worst thing that they could do is tell them, for one thing, that there's nothing there because just because they can't see it doesn't mean that there's nothing there. And in addition to that, it's it's very important that they don't tell their children that it's their guardian angel or Aunt Lulu coming to look over them, because if it was their guardian angel or Aunt Lulu, it wouldn't be shaking their bed in the, in the middle of the night, scaring the daylights out of them. And so, um, you know, there are just certain things that need to be understood and done in order to to keep more of a calm situation in your home while you're trying to address uh, getting the things out if it's possible, or even moving for that point if you can't, and um, and also you know the children they're everybody's whispering about the the thing in the house, but usually the kids are the ones that see it walking around. Yeah. So you do have to include them, and you have to give them some coping school, some skills to 
feel empowered in protecting themselves. Uh, Lynn, we're out of time, but uh, I wish oh. we had more time. <laughs> An hour goes rather quickly here. Um, but this is a fascinating story, and we've actually only gotten, uh, you know, kind of scratched the surface here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that you'll agree to come back at some point in the near future, and we can continue talking about this. But I would the, love to. Yeah, but in the meantime, is the book available now, and where can people get it? It is. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's currently on Amazon, and yes, that's where you can get it. Or you can even email me at um, omnipresent.the.book if you have problems with getting it through Amazon, and you can send me an email there. You can also find that email on my website, which is currently under construction, but there the, um, the way to contact me through email is on there. But you can contact me, and I can help you get a copy of it as well. And uh, one one last question about the book. The title is Omnipresent. How did you choose the title? I chose the pres- Omnipresent. I mean, I know that Omnipresent is normally a title that is that is used in reference, you know, to, to God and, yeah. and, and that sort of thing. But I chose it because I was in a situation with spirits at large that no matter, you know, what I did, the entities were still there. It was like constantly encountered and no matter... Like I said, when I tried to get rid of them, they made their presence known. So I felt that omnipresent was fitting. Well, I said final question, but I actually have one more. Do you know if the activity is continuing in the home? Well, um, just just really, really quick. About six months after I sold it, um, I did get curious, and I drove past. Um, that I was in the area, and I kind of was passing. But I didn't want to pull in on the street because it was a dead-end street because I would have to go past twice i'd have to go in and then Mm -hmm. come back out Mm -hmm. but as i was driving past on the road it was the second house and on the left there was a sign in the front yard and that got my curiosity up because i couldn't tell whether it was in the neighbor's yard or that or or the house's yard that i sold so i got up my nerve i turned around i drove down the street and sure enough um it was a for sale by owner sign and that was about six months after now whether they actually sold it or not i don't know but um i um at that point i had gone to the end of the street and turned around and I remember praying, please don't let them come outside because yeah. they'll recognize me. And yeah. I and I was brokenhearted at that point sure. in time. I, I had hoped that all of my efforts had really, really worked and that those people could, could be successful living in that house and having a happy home. And just as I'm coming past leaving the street to go towards the stop sign and get out, um, I had my radio playing, and all of a sudden my radio blares on my car, and I could not get it to turn down <laughs> or to shut off until I got to the stop sign and turned off the street, then it turned itself off. So to me, it was like a calling card that they were letting me know that not only did they know I was there, they wanted me to also know that they were still there. Wow. And I keep saying final question, but I do have to ask you, and if you can answer this one rather quickly, I'd appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You saw... Um, the, the specter of somebody hanging uh, who had hung themselves in the house when you first walked through it. Did um, Do you believe that that person, did you, I don't know if you ever found out any uh, historical fact about what happened there, but did do you believe that that person was driven to do what they did by the demons? Or do you believe that what they did in some way uh, manifested the de- demonic activity? No, um, it was the demons caused the demise. Um, the demons were in the house, uh, and again, we can do this because um, there's, there's a story that goes with it. It was I, what I did learn about hauntings is that it's not about the house; it's about the ground that it's built on. Right. 
So you can have a brand new house, and if you build it in the wrong place, it can be haunted. And they just so happened to build theirs in the wrong place. So it was haunted while it was being built. Yeah. And um, he, and, and he, you know, he, the result of his, his uh, death was, I believe, was instigated by the demonic presences in the house. Lynn, again, thank you so much for being here. As I said, I'll have uh, Slick Eddie reach back out to you, and we'll schedule another time because there's so much more we can get into about your story and your book. But uh, best of luck with it. Thanks for being here. And and uh, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, the email address is the best way to do it? Yes. Perfect. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Thanks for being here, Lynn. Well, thank you so much for having me. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.